Hi, welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet, and today is Monday, June 15th. I'll be speaking with New York education attorney Paul O'Neill for a special education update. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Glad to have you back. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. Great. We're excited to have you back to talk about how things are going in terms of the COVID-19 closures in terms of special education and special education students. The school closures, I think, have continued for months. I don't think anybody saw that coming. And I'd love to start with getting your thoughts on whether or not schools when they began this, were really prepared to operate remotely for as long as they have. Yeah, I think that's true. I think people really didn't see this coming. The analogy I've been using has been that it at first it felt like a really long snow day. People <laughs> were closing down long enough to try and wait this thing out. And in many places, they weren't really trying to teach new information for weeks. They were just sort of holding study halls and reviews of work that was already done. But the reality is that, as everybody knows, that this has continued and with really no limit in sight to when things are going to get back from craziness. So in terms of special education, the rules got made fairly early about how these districts and schools should handle these closures. And that came from the U.S. Department of Education, which issued some guidance documents in March. And those guidance documents have kind of defined how things are supposed to go during the closures. Okay. Do you feel like during this time, what would you say the percentage is of learning in terms of a comparison of what special education students were getting in an in-person setting versus what they have been getting. If you look at the in-person being 100% education, what would you say the percentage of their remote education has been? It's a good question, but it's ultimately hard to answer. A lot of special education is broken down by incredible variety of what children are bringing to the table and what the districts and the charter schools are able to do. And in this particular case, getting back to what I was saying before about the U.S. Department of Education, they issued some guidance in March that said that schools that are endeavoring to continue to educate kids despite having their buildings closed should make a determination about what services they can provide remotely to kids with disabilities and what services really need to be done in person and therefore have to be deferred until the buildings open. And they didn't try and say exactly what services that would be because it's so dependent on the circumstances of each individual child and each school and the family situation at home and technology and a million other things. So that means that brings us back to your question, which was what percentage of the services were provided or are still being provided. And I would say it completely depends on the school and the kid, because there are some children, particularly those with high needs, what we would call low incidence disabilities, who are not getting anything now, Mm -hmm. because the sense is that that needs to be done in person, entirely in person. And there are some districts and charter schools that have providing a lot of the services because they've found out how to do that remotely. And so you really would have to go place to place to figure it out. I would say it's everything from a complete deferral of special education services in some places Mm -hmm. to, to doing most of it in other places. Okay. One thing that I thought might be interesting to clarify is 
the range of special education needs out there. I was surprised, and I shouldn't be surprised to learn that special education can encompass schools for the blind, schools for the hearing impaired. And I had not thought of those before. I tend to think of special education in terms of children with learning disabilities, maybe on the autism spectrum with physical uh, limitations of some kind. So when you speak of special education and these programs and charter schools, does it touch every range of special need? Sure. Yeah. The way, the way we break it down under the law is that there's a little more than a dozen categories of disability that fit within the main federal special education law, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. We often call that the IDEA or IDEA. Mm -hmm. And if you have one of those categories of disabilities, such as autism or multiple disabilities or specific learning disabilities, then you're covered by that law. But that certainly incorporates kids who have visual problems or hearing auditory problems it's a full range. So if you are okay. covered by the IDEA, then you receive services under under that. If if you don't have a disability that falls within the IDEA, you still might be receiving services under a different law, under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which has a broader uh, a broader way that it approaches disabilities and thinks about more in terms of the impact on your life and not so much going off of a limited list. But certainly kids with disabilities present in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. And right now, it's impacting kids, as I said a minute ago, in a variety of ways, depending on whether those services are continuing. Okay. Yeah, I would imagine, given that range, the challenges that must be faced on so many different levels is kind of staggering to think about. Well, nobody, nobody saw it coming. And, and an interesting fact is that the law didn't see it coming. There is nothing in the law, in the federal law, that anticipates all the schools shutting down. There's just nothing there. And that's why we had to have the Department of Education in Washington step in and interpret things, because there was nothing to look to. Right. We, we, you know, we're doing the best we can in a situation that nobody saw coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how have students with disabilities fared during this time? Well, we'll go immediately back to the variety, right? Mm, Some of yeah. them have receiving services, and that's been working pretty well. Some of them have not received services, and they're still waiting for them. Mm -hmm. Some of them have had a bumpy journey of trying to, to access services remotely when that's not easy to do. There are, of course, also factors that are specific to every family. So in some cases, families are dealing with all kinds of chaos and have not been able to be as responsive to the schools as would be ideal. And, and in those situations, you might find the services deferred, not because they're not possible in a remote setting, but because the families and the schools can't line up. And so, you know, if, you, if we can't connect, then it may be that they're not receiving what they need to receive. But uh, I, my sense from what I read in the schools that I talk to is that a lot of schools are not thriving in the, um, in the remote instruction that they are providing and that people are seeing learning losses uh, across the board, not just for kids with disabilities, but that, you know, nobody got into this on purpose. Yeah. And that meant that most people were doing the best that they could, although not with any preordained plan or expertise. And so I would say, just to answer your question, kids with disabilities are probably doing okay if they're getting the services now. Um, 
most of them not thriving, and some of them are just not getting the services yet at all. Okay. And are there any rules on how to provide the services for students with disabilities while the school buildings are closed? Well, that takes us back to what I was saying before about the U.S. Department of Education's guidance. A bunch of different pieces have come out, um, you know, everything from do what you can now, defer what you can't till later, to you can endeavor to, uh, to, to remote therapies that would be related services that might be ordinarily uh, expected to be done in person or through secure websites that really protect uh, privacy more than like Zoom or some of these other platforms would do. Mm-hmm. But there's been, there has been a fair amount of flexibility built into the messages that have come from the federal level. Of course, every time we talk about education, we have to factor in the fact that it's not just a federal thing, it's a state thing and a district thing. And we have to look for what the local rules are. And mm-hmm. so every state has been finding ways to try to put these programs forward, to try and allow schools the flexibility that they need to operate. And you would have to look at what the state rules are and what the waivers are. So states would ordinarily have way, have, have rules that would apply to special education. And in many places, some of those rules have been suspended or waived in some way in order to allow for services to go forward now. Okay. And then in terms of when you say services being deferred, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, they're, they've got a buildup of services that are due to them? And will that take place over the summer? Are schools continuing to work on how they're going to fit that in so maybe students don't fall behind? Or is that just inevitable? Yeah, it's it's tricky. And, you know, what strikes me is that the approach that we've taken to this made sense from the perspective of people who didn't think it was going to last terribly long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think I would give folks a high mark at the governmental level for stepping in and trying to create a structure that allowed kids to keep going. But there's a difference between a short-term closure and a longer-term closure. As of as of what's today, June 15th, we don't have a vaccine and we don't have a vaccine on the horizon. And so the, I think the, the reasonable expectation is that this isn't going to stop as a remote exercise or at least partly remote uh, exercise anytime soon. And the rule made by the department that we would defer special education services that couldn't be readily provided remotely, that we would defer those until when the school buildings reopen, is starting to look like a plan that doesn't work for the future. Okay. It doesn't work in a longer term plan because if we can't reopen the buildings, then you don't have the services kick in. What they basically said is we would treat these deferred services as uh, as services that would build up, essentially, as you said, that would build it as compensatory services. And, you know, we would add up the number of hours of, of occupational therapy that a kid was supposed to receive and didn't receive yet, and then we'd sort of add them on when we reopen. Mm-hmm. But that assumes we reopen. Right. Right. And so I talked to lots of schools that are not expecting to be open in the fall in the way that they were before COVID. And so then that asks the raises this really important educational and civil rights question of how long do you make them wait? 
Right. Uh, is, is it an indefinite deferral? Because if it's an indefinite deferral, it becomes a waiver, you know, a waiver of rights yeah. when the law didn't change. And that really becomes problematic. Right. Right. Well, and, and I would also think that there's some degree for students of also, um, you know, while they've been on pause, they're educationally sliding back. It's not like they're going to mm-hmm. be able to just pick right up where they had been. There's sort of a loss that's happening. Well, I think there's folks are worried about learning loss across, you know, all of the kids, not mm-hmm. just not just the kids with disabilities, but in particular for kids with disabilities who haven't been receiving all of the services and interventions and accommodations and modifications and all kinds of elements of their of their IEPs, which is the plan they have under the IDEA. Mm-hmm. Um, for those kids, I think the expectation is that, yeah, kids are not doing well. And so so what do we do? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like the analogy, the, the, the immovable object comes up against the unstoppable force. Like, so how do we move forward with services that we've determined can't be provided until we reopen, but we can't reopen. Right. But you have to provide those services, right? It's tricky, and, and I do have some thoughts about that. Okay, that was my next question is, can any of those things happen in the summer when schools are not trying to handle the remote education for all students? And does summer give them some time to just focus specifically on special education students? I guess what I would say is maybe, but probably not, because summer is on us. We're already in the middle of June, Mm -hmm. um, and I think folks have not fully grappled with how to come up with a plan for serving those needs with the current set of circumstances that are still here. So I think a Mm -hmm. lot of folks are going to use the summer for a kind of diagnostic and remedial purposes, trying to get kids... um, to provide information about what they are behind on and and maybe focusing some programs on those specific kids. It's possible that kids with disabilities who've been able to receive services so far but haven't been thriving could get some of those remedial services. But that doesn't capture the whole universe of the kids who weren't receiving the services yet anyway. So I think I think the summer will be for analysis and for mediation, mm-hmm. and it will also be for planning, for planning on what the heck to do in a fall that's going to look like no fall ever has before. Yeah. So my question for you is, what do you think we can expect for the fall? Well, in my work with the firm, I interact with lots of schools and networks, um, and I certainly am hearing from them that they don't know for sure what they want to do. Mm-hmm. They're worried that there's not enough money to do their program, and they're thinking about cutbacks. They're worried that they may not be able to get students into the buildings. They may be not able to get their teachers into the buildings or to get transportation that will get them to the building. There are a whole a whole laundry list of things that are challenges. And so given all those challenges, a lot of them are saying, well, maybe we just have to stay remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll do a little less than fully remote, but probably starting to fall remote. And if they do, then that raises the need, among other various needs, to find a way to maybe do a little better than they were able to do uh, in the late winter and in the spring when they simply deferred special education services until some future date. Okay. 
So what advice are you giving to schools right now in terms of how to begin approaching creating a, a program for the fall that would allow for more success and a better delivery model, basically, in remote learning? Right. Well, let me give you a couple of ideas. And these are ideas that I lay out in a blog post that I put up a week or so ago on the net site website for the National Center for Special Education and Charter Schools. <clears throat> the blog post is called The End of the Beginning. Um, and uh, so I'll hit you with a few. Okay. Uh, what, one thought is that you need to make providing mandated services for kids with disabilities a priority in reopening plans. And, you know, too often special education is kind of the tail on the dog. It's the, it's the, the additional consideration. Oh, yeah, what about special ed? That's a mistake in general because every kid deserves to be, you know, a part of the thinking of the school and what their plans are going to be. But in this particular case, special education is one of the most challenging elements of a plan. And you've got to make that a priority uh, as you as you think through different scenarios for reopening. So that's that's one. Okay. Um, another is that it makes sense to train a cohort of professionals to conduct assessments, as I mentioned before, probably over the summer, that will document present levels of student mastery and retention in order to inform instruction and revisions to IEPs to try and make sure that we know what we're dealing with as we seek to serve these kids. Mm -hmm. Third, if a school doesn't intend to return um, to the building, fully school-based instruction for the fall, I think we have to start thinking about half measures, um, ways that we might allow students uh, with disabilities to have access to the kind of in-person services, such as evaluations that are normally done in person or occupational therapy. And, uh, and maybe access could be provided at certain buildings within mm -hmm. a geographic area or, um, or at other locations that could be made clean and safe. But the idea of half measures isn't something that schools have been urged to do up to now, because again, the, 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 the guidance that we've gotten has been do what you can now, defer what you can't till later. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying now is later's not going to come anytime soon, so we have to take a different approach and try and re-examine what we could do. With, with that in mind, I think uh, you know another another consideration would be to re-examine the assumptions and the challenges that have been presented to try and come up with creative solutions. Like, mm -hmm. is there a way that we can build a plexiglass divider and have somebody wear gloves and do some kind of physical therapy? Is there a way that we can change around the physical environment or how we use that environment or what we do so that we can just think outside the box? Yeah. Because if we leave it the way it is, it, it, it's problematic. I got a couple more if you want me to keep rolling here. Yeah, that's great. All right. So the thinking about what a particular child needs should probably be developed into some kind of compensatory services plan. Now, remember, I told you these deferred services are being treated like compensatory services mm -hmm. under the IDEA. And, and that's, um, that's kind of a metaphor because ordinarily under special ed law, compensatory services are services that should have been provided by a, a district or a charter school, whoever the um, responsible party is. But they weren't just sort of inadvertently or inappropriately. So you're sort of in trouble and you got to provide these services. That's not what we're talking mm -hmm. about here. We're talking about services that just simply couldn't be provided. And so they were held off till later. But I think what we need is a plan that 
calculates, you know, what the service hours that have been deferred are, and but also reflects the expertise of the team and at the school and the IEP team taking a fresh look at what the kid needs and not just adding up X number of hours of, of services. And I'll give you, I'll give you one more, mm-hmm. and that is, I think, I think schools need to think of in terms of a backup plan. One thing that I think we know for sure is that things are not going to be easy to predict. Yeah, the budget's not easy to predict. The circumstances in terms of the health in a particular location. I mean, is there is there a, 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 a outbreak? Is there a new spike in in a particular area that close that causes the schools to close again after they've already been open? We need a backup plan. And by the way, a backup plan that also captures the the fact that, that internet services may go down and other kinds of things that we're relying on may go down. But we need to make sure that there's a continuity of service to kids with disabilities despite interruptions. It's yeah. true for all kids. I think particularly true for, for vulnerable kids like this who are receiving these kinds of services. Um, it could be that the school should come up with a, with a range of options, everything from, from being fully back in person to being fully virtual and, you know, and something in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to be ready to follow this for, you know, an indefinite period of time. Yeah. Have you seen much in countries that have reopened? I think Denmark was one of the first countries to reopen. And then there hasn't been a lot of news about how successful those school reopenings have been. Are countries like that providing any kind of data or as examples for what's possible and what doesn't work? Well, I have seen information collected from what's going on in other countries. And I'll give a shout out to McKinsey. McKinsey seems to be putting out a series of PowerPoint slides that have been going around the internet, collecting up lessons learned from other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's, a, it's a lot of the same sorts of things that folks have been contemplating here but haven't put into place yet such as changing around the physical configuration of the, of the instructional space, you know, yep. literally getting out hammers and nails and screwdrivers and moving things around so that there's more of an ability to social distance and creating the opportunity to do things outdoors where it's possible to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of different health and safety measures. I think, I think you know, there are other countries, as you say, that are, are further along in the timeline than we are. I haven't I haven't heard of anything that seems like a perfect solution that will work for everybody everywhere. The variety here is is kind of maddening. Yeah. But um but I think I'm I'm encouraged by the fact that that other countries have gotten up and running again. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think and I could be I hope I'm wrong on this. I don't think that we can expect schools in America to be back to normal um within the next couple of months because I have seen no evidence of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I I know even in my own local area, schools are already giving parents kind of a heads up that that's pretty unlikely, you know, to help parents, I guess, get their head around it and do what they can to prepare. I think that's right. In some cases, I worry, though, that in other cases, schools are engaging in what I would call magical thinking, Mm -hmm. that it's just going to straighten itself out or (laughs) are just they're so inundated by the pressures and the struggles that they have in the moment, that they're not stopping and saying, wait a minute, what's going to be different in November than it is right now? 
why is it that we're thinking like it'll all just work out? I think some places have not sufficiently drilled down, and I think they need to. Do you have any other thoughts that you want to share before we close? Well, one possibility it's worth keeping in the back of your mind is that the federal government has flirted with the idea of waiving some or all provisions relating to the federal special education law um, in a way that would ease the requirements of schools and districts to kick back in with this big mountain of corrective services. Um, and, and at every chance that they've had to do it over the last couple of months, they have declined. Mm. So there was, a, there was a moment when Congress passed one of the stimulus bills to provide aid to the country, and there was some language in there initially about a waiver, and that was taken out, but they left in a, a demand that the U.S. Secretary of Education let them know within a month what kind of waivers she might want. Mm -hmm. And the months passed and she didn't seek any. So there was no waiver. And it's still possible as, as Congress keeps acting on bills to support the country during the crisis, it's possible that they might throw something in there that might change uh, and perhaps lessen the responsibilities that schools and districts have to, to, to provide special education kids with with services. So I would say that's something that school leaders should remain attentive for okay. because you need to know you need to know if those if those are changing. And I would just also say always be aware of what the state law is and is changing to be. Okay. Because it's not just the federal stuff that matters. You need to find a mechanism to stay on top of what um, what's going on. Sure. And for anybody listening to this that is looking for updates on state law, please feel free to visit our website, www.bglaw.com. Paul provides updates for New York, um, Paul and his colleagues. And we have practices in both Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And we also provide updates in both of those states regularly as well. Do you have any other resources that you feel clients should also seek out? Well, for the special ed uh, issues, I would say I, I mentioned the site before, the National Center for Special Education and Charter Schools, ncsecs.org, and they are keeping a log of, of materials that they create and that are created by other people. Uh, and I think that that can be very useful. There's a sort of part of the website devoted to COVID issues. And there's another recently created organization that's called ELAD, E-A-L-A.org, Educating All Learners Alliance. That, again, is a resource specifically devoted to special education during this time of strangeness. So I, I would look to both of those resources. Okay. And I'll add both of those on our website attached to this podcast so people can check them both out. Well, thank you, Diana. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you very much. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters. 
including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.